Patrick Madrid is a publisher of Envoy magazine, in which he was kind enough to have the magazines available to you, and he is the director of the Envoy Institute of Belmont Abbey College, which is, if you haven't heard what's going on out there, it's a phenomenal story, uh, a great story. Patrick is the author and editor of 14 books and booklets on Catholic themes, including Pope Fiction, Search and Rescue, Does the Bible Really Say That?, and 150 Bible Verses Every Catholic Should Know. He edited and co-authored the acclaimed multi-volume Surprised by Truth series, which has over 500,000 combined copies in print, in English, and in Spanish. He is the host of four EWTN television series, including Pope Fiction and Search and Rescue, and he hosts the Thursday edition of EWTN's radio's open line broadcast. Cardinal, uh, Edward Cardinal Egan actually said, the former, former Archbishop of New York recently commented on the effectiveness of Patrick's approach to apologetics, saying, how do you bring a friend or relative back into the church? First you pray, then you follow Patrick Madrid's advice in his book, Search and Rescue. Patrick and his wife, Nancy, have been married for 29 years and have been blessed with 11 healthy and happy children and seven grandchildren, including one on the way. So I ask you to please give a warm welcome to Patrick Madrid. On now? Ah, there we go. Thank you, Chris. I felt bad when you mentioned that I had turned down your article, but um, <clears throat> you're right. We do have very high standards, so <laughs> just kidding. Send it back to me. Maybe we'll, we'll find a home for it in Envoy magazine. I hope you all got a copy of Envoy there. <clears throat> That's there in case the talks get boring. You'll have um, something to read during the talks. Thank you for the, for the warm welcome. It's great to be here. I hope this won't be too distracting, this little gizmo up here. I, I was delighted to discover that I would be coming back to a place I had been before, which is the, the, the Catholic Center. What is it called where I'm staying? Spiritual Life Center. Uh, I'm, I'm there to stay uh, last night and tonight. And, uh, of course, uh, some friends, friendly faces that I have seen before, people I have met. So thank you for all coming back out. And uh, I thought we would start off with a little bit of fun before we get into the serious work and one of the things that I, I like to share with people is a hobby I have, and that's collecting bulletin announcement bloopers. And uh, maybe you've heard some of these. I've actually found two on my own. One, for example, I was speaking at a church in North Haven, Connecticut, and in their bulletin for the prayers of the faithful that week, they were praying that there would be more vacations that would come out of their parish. And, uh, <laughs> and I immediately put that on my own personal list of, of uh, prayer concerns. Uh, at my parish, St. Patrick's Parish in Columbus, Ohio, they had a, it wasn't a bulletin blooper, but it was a blooper in the, the Easter hymnal that they had printed up for Easter Mass a few years ago. And, you know, at Easter Mass, they have all the incense and 40 or 50 altar servers and trumpets and lilies and all that. And it was glorious. And they had printed up these booklets to, to uh, be keepsakes after this Mass. And uh, at the end of Mass, we all stood up to sing, I think it was the song was Crown Him With Many Crowns. 
And uh, we all stood up to sing, all 800 of us at St. Patrick's Parish, and we belted out at the top of our lungs a blooper that had been printed in, in the line, which was something to the effect of, uh, rise my soul in sin. And we all <laughs> looked at that more closely. We realized that the poor typist had left a G off. The father was not giving us permission to do anything, but it was uh, one that I caught. How about these? Uh, don't let worry kill you. Let the church help. <laughs> Please pray for all those who are sick of our parish community. <laughs> Thursday night, potluck supper, prayer, and medication to follow. <laughs> this coming Saturday, there will be baptisms in the north and south ends of the church. Children will be baptized at both ends. <laughs> the mental images that come with some of them. Next Sunday after the noon mass, we will hear a special talk from Bertha Belch, a missionary in China. Everyone is invited to come here, Bertha Belch, all the way from China. Can't <clears throat> imagine what that would sound like. This week's healing mass has been canceled due to an illness. Um, the parish low esteem support group will meet Monday night in the parish hall. Please use the back door. <clears throat> low esteem support. Okay. Uh, on Friday, the parish will ho- on Friday evening, the parish will host a Lenten bean supper. Music will follow. <laughs> this being Easter Sunday, we will ask Mrs. Lewis to come forward and lay an egg on the pulpit. Okay. And maybe my favorite, uh, next Sunday, the pastor's sermon topic will be, What is Hell? Come early and listen to our choir practice. <laughs> wow. I have a million of these folks, so uh, maybe over the course of the, of the day we can get to a few more. My first talk this morning is on the subject, uh, I know it wasn't printed in the, uh, the booklet or the, the paper there, but my first talk uh, of the three that I'll be giving is on the subject of conversion. And of course, here we are, as, as it was mentioned a few minutes ago, we're standing on the threshold of Lent, and we all know that we've got to, uh, at least in spirit and hopefully with some practical measures that we might take, giving up something for Lent the way we Catholics uh, so often do, which is a very good thing. We are standing at the edge of this new season in which we are called upon by the church to not only reflect upon our lives and, and who and how we are in relation to God, but also we're called to reform. We're called to convert, to deepen this sense of communion with the Lord, communion with the body of Christ. And so as I was uh, thinking about this weekend, as I have been for the last couple of months, knowing that I would be coming here to speak to you, I wanted to share with you some principles that I've run across, some things that I've learned from, certainly from sacred scripture, from the great saints, and even a few incidents along the way that I myself have witnessed that I think are uh, beneficial for all of us to think about when it comes to the issue of conversion. Let's take that word conversion as a term, if you break it down and look at the underlying Latin meanings and so forth, it's a very simple concept. It simply means to turn from one thing toward another. So conversion, in our case, is to turn away from all those things, whatever they may be, that are blocking us from having that more perfect union with Christ. The, The selfishnesses, the lusts, the appetites, the addictions, the uh, hardness of heart, the uh, critical spirits, you know, all the things that get in the way, all the things that are incompatible with being 
the Christians that Christ is calling us to be. Those are the things that the saints are telling us, the gospel reading, the, uh, all the wisdom of the church and scripture and tradition. Those are all constantly reminding us we have to turn away from those things and turn toward the truth. And the verse I'd like to use as the motif for my talk this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And it's uh, 1 Corinthians 13 verse 11. It might be worth jotting down if you want to pray with this verse later. St. Paul says, When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I thought as a child. I reasoned as a child. But when I became a man, I put up or I gave up childish ways. That's a very brief verse, but I think it says an awful lot, certainly for what we are about today. And that is that, you know, we all, we all have to take stock of ourselves and say, well, what is it in my life that is childish in comparison with Christian maturity? What I should be doing as a man or woman in Christ? What are those things? We, I gave a little list of some of them a minute ago. You know, the appetites, the hardest of heart, the things of that nature. So it seems to me that what we have to do is implement that teaching of St. Paul in our own lives. And generally, what what the saints tell us is that it, it generally does not require any grand flourishes. We don't have to do any majestic things or any very uh, dramatic actions to accomplish this task. More often than not, the conversion that, that Christ is calling us to is accomplished day by day with little hidden unseen acts, whether of mortification or patience and all the ways in which we, we tend to um, let ourselves wallow in those things we're turning away from. So it's not with any prescription for some grand gesture that I'm, I'm referring to now. It's rather, what are the things that we can do that are significant and powerful, but yet when we stop and look at them, we realize that they're, they're actually more often than not hidden things in our own lives. So what, what are those things? I, I break them down into three categories. The first is we have to have a conversion of our intellect, so our, our, our Catholic intellect. And these are in no particular order. You could order these however you want. So just the first one would be our, our intellectual conversion, moving away from childish ways of thinking, childish approaches to our Catholic faith, to something more adult. There's also the spiritual conversion. Now, this is what we typically think about when we're getting toward Lent, you know, the spirit of conversion, drawing closer to Christ, our thoughts, our emotions, and so forth. And then the third category would be our moral conversion. And moral conversion has to do with our actions. So we can break those down either by saying intellectual, spiritual, or moral, or we could say through our knowledge, through our thoughts and emotions, and through our actions. And so what I like to do is just cycle through all of these and give, uh, give some thoughts for consideration, some things that I think are very helpful. And I'll begin with, uh, I think I'm going to begin with the spiritual conversion because this is, where, this is where our attitudes are formed and the way in which we'll carry out conversion in the other areas will have a lot to do with our spiritual conversion. I'll, I'll take a little leap of faith here and just talk for a moment about my own experience. And uh, I am, I am a, uh, I'm a sinner talking to a room full of sinners, so it makes it easy for all of us. And I'm a layman speaking to a room full of lay people, so I, I'm not trying to come at any of this the way a priest or a bishop would if you were giving a, a retreat. Uh, I'm just sharing with you what my experience was. 
And I went through a reconversion experience when I was in my mid-20s. I had been uh, married. I got married when I was 20 years old to the most wonderful woman in the world, my wife, Nancy. We started having children pretty quickly. I think our first child was conceived about 10 months, maybe nine months in three and a half weeks or something like that, right after we got married. So we just started having children immediately and uh, never looked back. It was, it's been a great experience. Uh, we, we have, as, as uh, I believe it's Chris, as he mentioned, we have 11 children now. We didn't know how many children we expected to have. We just thought we'll be open and see what God gives us. It's interesting. We've never been asked to teach NFP classes either, you know, with um, <laughs> 11 kids. <laughs> I think they're afraid we would uh, scare people away. Um, but I went through a conversion in my mid-20s that stemmed from what had happened in my life from the time I was in my teen years moving forward into my early 20s. And that was that I was a Catholic on paper. I, I would defend the Catholic Church. Uh, I am not a convert, by the way. I'm a cradle Catholic, born and raised in a Catholic family. My mom and dad did a wonderful job of uh, raising us in the faith in a way that, on the one hand, wasn't loose and lax, but on the other, we did, they didn't go to the extreme of turning our house into a monastery or something like that where you know, we didn't smell incense at, at dinner time, and there, was, there wasn't a, a statue of Our Lady in every single room. We had statues of Our Lady and crucifixes, but it was a balanced approach to raising kids in the faith, and I'm very grateful to my parents for having done that. And uh, as often happens, you know, you get into your teen years, and you start to encounter a little bit of the world of flesh and the devil. And you get into high school, and for me, what, what my, uh, my love was was rock and roll music, and I was playing in rock and roll bands, playing the bass guitar, doing a little singing, and um, I, I had delusions of grandeur. I thought I was going to be the next Paul McCartney. And um, I, I nourished that hope for years and years and years and learned how to play all the Beatles songs and all that kind of thing. And I really loved playing music, and I still do. I still enjoy it. But I thought that was going to be my career. I thought I was going to be a rock star, which is ridiculous now that I look back on it. But <clears throat> what happened was that kind of a... Of a a pursuit, of course, it involves, among other things, probably the, the primary thing that involves, for most people, is narcissism. And the narcissism that's inherent in that lifestyle is, is rampant. And you know, I didn't really fully even understand it until later on when I looked back on it. But what I discovered was that all of my Catholicity was, for the most part, something that was theoretical. I would go to Mass on Sunday, I would pray before meals, but there were plenty of things that I should have been doing that I didn't. And there were plenty of things that I should not have been doing that I did. And in the music scene and with all the stuff going on there, it was, uh, it was kind of a wilderness time for me when I was Catholic up here, but not really very much here in, in the heart. And so when I went through this conversion experience, it was wrenching for me because I had to turn away from, as St. Paul said, I had to turn away from those childish things. They're childish. They were... They were shallow and meaningless in the big picture, and they were doing nothing for me, certainly nothing good. And it, it was when I began to have this conversion experience, which lasted about a year, that I started to go on my lunch hour at work to the, the local church near my office, and I would make a visit before the Blessed Sacrament. I would pray the rosary, and I would implore our Lord and Our Lady to show me what needed to be done. You know, what must I do now to live the life that you were calling me to live, God. And uh, about the last month of this process was the most decisive for me. 
And it got to the point where I, I was convinced in my heart that God was calling me to do something with my life. I didn't know what it was. By then, of course, I was married, and I had a few children. So marriage was certainly my vocation in life. But I knew I was working in sales at the time, and sales is a noble profession, but I, I just knew deep down that that's not what God wanted for me. So figuratively speaking, I was banging my head against the tabernacle door, asking God to show me what I would do with my life, what he wanted me to do with my life. And I thought I needed to take some drastic action so that I could discover what God's will was. So I thought I would be like Peter in the fishing boat who got out of the boat when Jesus told him to come and walk across the water. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so I quit my job suddenly to see, you know, I figured God's not going to let us starve, so I've, surely he's going to show me what he wants me to do because I've got to feed my family. And my wife, I'm, I'm still astonished that she didn't uh, brain me with a rolling pin or something like that when I came home and told her that I had quit my, my good, well-paying job. And... Um, the following day, Saturday, a friend of mine called, and uh, this friend was an attorney. Uh, this is when I lived in California, and he and I both shared a common interest in apologetics. I had, the previous year, 19, uh, 1987, I had become more and more and more interested in apologetics, especially apologetics with Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. And so the more it went, the more he and I uh, would talk on the phone and share our common interest, and it went on for basically the whole year, and we, he would call me or I would call him. It just so happens the day after I quit my job, this friend of mine called me, and he said, hey, what's going on, and let's talk, you know, what's the latest thing? And I said, well, for me, the latest thing is that I quit my job, and I'm looking to see what God wants me to do, so please pray for me. And I gave him a little bit of the background on this conversion process I'd gone through. And he said, well, I can pray for you, but I could do something even better than that. He says, I've decided I'm going to close down my law practice, and I'm going to start a Catholic apologetics organization. He said, why don't you join me? And, and we'll build this thing up and see, see what comes of it. And I said, nah, you know, whatever it is that God has in store for me, it can't be that. <laughs> and then my wife sweetly reminded me, you don't have a job right now. <laughs> Probably a good idea to accept this until what you are looking for finally surfaces. So my friend was persistent, and so was my wife. So I told, I told him, okay, I'll do it, just on a, on a purely temporary basis. I, I'll do it until the thing that I'm looking for uh, makes its appearance. And so I did. I worked with him, and it turns out that that friend of mine, his name is Carl Keating, and the organization he started is Catholic Answers. And this was uh, January of 1988 when Catholic Answers was really nothing but just producing some tracts and some a small newsletter. His book, Catholicism and Fundamentalism, hadn't come out yet. Uh, so it was really a tiny, a tiny um, seed of what it would eventually become with the great radio programs and all the things that they do. But that, for me, was the doorway that the Lord was opening for me, and I was just too thick-headed to realize it. And I only later looked back and I recognized this is what God was calling me to do. I didn't know it at the time. But at least I had the, the willingness, thank God, to walk in that direction, even though it seemed like it was not where God was calling me to be. And from there, I became very uh, deeply involved in, in, I don't even know what else to call it, the work of conversion, studying and, and learning and trying to help people to do the same thing in their own lives, how to convert from whether it's being a non-Catholic to becoming Catholic, 
which is the fullness of the truth. We want people to have everything, not just a portion of, of it. Uh, how to convert in their own lives, how to, how to become better Catholics. My first book that came out back in 1994 is called Surprised by Truth. And I think some of you may have seen it or may have read it. It's a book of conversion stories. Surprised by Truth 2 is out on the table out there. It's another collection of conversion stories. And one of the things that I learned is that this spiritual conversion is different for everybody, but there are certain key ingredients that seem to be the same in every instance. The first of those ingredients is that when people realize that this life is not a, this life is not a dress rehearsal for anything. This is it. This is all we've got. And we don't know, of course, how long any of us will live. We all hope that we will live to a ripe old age, but many of us in this room won't. Some will. Most won't. We don't know. Maybe only God knows what will happen. But when, when conversion really begins to take root, it seems to me, is when people suddenly, or maybe gradually, begin to recognize, I only have so much time. And in the hourglass analogy, you know, the, the sand going through the hourglass, most of us live our lives as if we have a whole lot of sand up on the top part of the glass, when in reality, there may be very little left. And that's not to be morbid. That's just simply to say, let's be realistic about this. That as uh, sacred scripture says in Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed to a man to die once and then the judgment. And at that point, all of us will go to one destination or the other. So this is a huge, it's a huge point for people to come to grips with the fact that we, we have to do what Christ put us here to do, and that is to become ready for the kingdom of heaven, to be ready to go to heaven when the time comes. And for me personally, a large part of my daily conversion is a reminder of that Latin phrase, memento mori, remember death. You may see pictures, for example, of St. Jerome, the great biblical scholar. He's more often than not depicted as translating scripture with a skull on the desk in front of him. And it wasn't that he was uh, fixated on the morbid aspects of death. He had the skull there to remind him that in due time, he would be dead. And it's a very uh, sobering kind of thing, but in a good way. In other words, it helps us to realize, I better be busy about the work that the Lord has given me because I don't know how much time I have left. The second part of the conversion that I've, I've seen in others, I certainly saw it in myself, is a softening of the heart toward the things of God. Things that at one point might appear to be dull or boring or uh, unimportant, praying the rosary, going to mass, frequent confession, whatever those things might be. Uh, when, when the grace of God begins to penetrate our hearts and begins to move us to see that these weapons of the Spirit, especially prayer and the sacraments, that these are treasures of grace that so many of us just live uh, lives uh, ignoring them. I don't remember who it was that said this, but I think it's a great line. He said, we live like beggars on top of Fort Knox. You know, we have everything, the riches of the faith, in every respect, and yet so many Catholics live as if we were uh, destitute with nothing at all. And it's really discovering those, those riches of the Spirit that begin to soften the heart and then move the heart in the direction of those things of God. I think, too, 
we have to take stock of the fact that our, our sins are sometimes things that we cherish. And, I, and I've learned this from, especially from some of the great saints, and even those who are not yet saints. I'm thinking of people like uh, um, the, great, the late great Archbishop Fulton Sheen. He used to talk about this a lot. He used to talk about how, you know, there's certain sins that we just were disgusted by and we say, ah, I don't want to do that, that's terrible. And then there are other sins that we kind of cherish in our hearts, things that we actually take pleasure in, things like hard-heartedness, unforgiveness, you know, spitefulness. There are all kinds of ways in which those little weeds can be constantly growing in the soul. So Fulton Sheen has taught me a lot about how we have to try to uproot those things and do away with them because um, the very fact that they're hidden can make them especially dangerous. There's a forgiveness angle as well. And forgiveness is uh, something I learned an awful lot about. Let me tell you a story that happened to me down in Florida. I was speaking at a conference, and I was at my book table signing books. And in my peripheral vision out of the corner of my eye, I could see this woman standing over here. And she did not have a very happy look on her face. She had kind of a, a... sour, angry look on her face. So when I finished signing my last book, I turned to her and smiled, and I said, hello. And she said, don't even try it. (laughs) I said, hello. She said, don't even try it. I said, what do you mean? She says, don't try to convert me. And I said, okay, what do you, why? why?" She said, well, I'm an ex-Catholic. I'm an evangelical Protestant. And uh, don't waste your time because I really, really strongly dislike the Catholic Church. And I said, oh, well, what do you dislike about it? She said, well, because you worship Mary and you worship statues. And she she gave a litany of arguments, standard arguments within the Protestant world against the Catholic faith. And my first instinct, quite frankly, was to just crush those arguments. You know know how in the old westerns when they would stand in the, the... Street in high noon, you got the guns here. You remember where the finger's kind of twitching on the gun, you know, like that? That's how I felt, except for me, my Bible was right here, and I was just twitching, wanting to grab that Bible. And my, my desire was to, was to just uh, crush, bulldoze, whatever analogy you want to use, these, in my view at least, these dumb arguments. And... She was very vehement in her dislike of the Catholic Church. And so I had this temptation to do that. But then at the same time, I felt this sentiment inside me, which I think was a grace of God telling me, just be quiet, just don't say anything. And so it was very unlike me to sit there and listen to somebody trash the Catholic Church like that so, so vociferously, but I did. And after about five or ten minutes, she got it all out of her system, or so it seemed, and she was, she was no longer as uh, worked up as she had been. And I said, well, let's go sit down and talk a little bit more if you have the time. So she said, okay. So we sat down at a table nearby. And, and I said, you mentioned that you, uh, you used to be Catholic. Tell me about that. So she started describing how she was raised in a Catholic family. She mentioned several times that it was a strict family. And she said that uh, when she was 18, 19 years old, she and her boyfriend were being promiscuous. She wound up getting pregnant. And she described, through tears now, she's starting to get emotional as she tells this, that she was afraid to tell her parents because she was worried that they would disown her, you know, pregnant daughter in a strict Catholic family, that they would just kick her out of the house. And she didn't know who she could tell. She didn't know if she could tell relatives or friends because she was afraid it would get back to her parents. 
And her boyfriend, on the other hand, he was also trying to get her to have an abortion. And she knew that was wrong. She didn't want to do that. So she was scared and she was worried and didn't know what to do. So as we're sitting there talking, she's tearing up now and and kind of crying as she describes how she went unannounced to a local rectory to check in with the priest and see if she could get some information, some advice, some encouragement, whatever. And the priest probably, I'm, I'm sure he had no idea the depths of this girl's confusion and her, her, uh, her fear. And he didn't take any time with her. He didn't, he, he didn't pray with her or anything. He just told her, according to her, she, he told her, well, these pregnancy tests are often inaccurate. It's no big deal. Take it again next week. It's probably nothing. And listen, I got to go. I, I'm, I have to go on to my next appointment. I'm sure he wasn't being malicious, but he was being uh, boneheaded because here we have this distraught young woman who needs assistance, who needs advice, who needs, you know, the, the care of a, of a pastor, and she didn't receive it. And she left the rectory, having been sort of, you know, brushed, brushed out of the room, she left the rectory in tears and feeling worse than she did when she got there, because now not even the priest is helping her, so what's she going to do? She gets in the car, and at that point, her boyfriend is successful in convincing her to have an abortion. So they drive down to the abortion clinic, <clears throat> and they have an abortion. She does. And uh, now, as she's sitting there telling me this story, this woman is weeping. And I felt unbelievably uncomfortable and ill-prepared. I had no idea what to say. I mean, what do you say? And she was describing some of the emotions that I can only imagine as a man that a woman would feel. The emotions of self-hatred and remorse and all of these things. So she's telling me this. She's crying, and I'm trying to think of anything to say. And uh, at that moment, she said, and then I, I really began to hate that priest because he didn't help me. And then she said, and I think she was talking more to herself than, it, than to me. She said, and then it was not really the priest anymore. It was the Catholic Church. She said, I began to hate the Catholic Church because in her mind, the Catholic Church symbolized all this pain that she was feeling. She, she had to turn those emotions somewhere. She had to aim them at something. And so first it was the priest, but then pretty soon it was the Catholic Church because in her mind, the way she was feeling, the Catholic Church was responsible for this terrible situation in her life. So she left the church. She became an evangelical Protestant and was a bitterly anti-Catholic, ex-Catholic for the next 15 years. Fast forward to that day that I'm speaking to her. So for all that time, she had harbored this, this strong hatred of the Catholic church. So there we are, <coughs> excuse me, sitting at this table. And through, through her tears as she's sort of, you know, wiping her eyes and trying to collect herself, she, she's uh, just gotten done telling me this cathartic, very, very personal and painful thing. And I, here again, didn't really know what to say to her. So the only thing I thought of to say was, you need to go to confession. And she looked at me as if I had said, here, hold this rattlesnake, you know. And she looked at me and she said, she said, what do you mean go to confession? She said, didn't you hear what I said? I don't, I hate the Catholic Church. There's no way I would go back to the Catholic Church. And I said, I heard you. But that doesn't change the fact that you need to go to confession. She says, well, I, I could never do that. What do you mean? I said, well, Jesus is waiting for you in the sacrament of confession. He can heal you. He wants to heal you. You just have to go. 
And she said, I don't think I could ever return to the Catholic Church. And I said, well, the door is always open. You can come back if you want to. But Christ is waiting for you. So we, ex- we exchanged emails. Or actually, I-, I gave her my email. I guess that's what it was. I gave her some books. I felt completely flat-footed. I didn't know what to say. And that was the end of it. That was the end of the conversation. She walked away, and I was left thinking, boy, what an idiot I was. I, I didn't have any good advice. I didn't have anything for her. And I got an email from her out of the blue six, seven weeks later. And I had forgotten about the conversation until I received her email. And the basic message of her email was, Dear Patrick, you were right. I needed to go to confession. And what she told me in, this, in subsequent emails was she said that my comment really irritated her, that, that the, this Catholic would have the temerity to say something like, go to confession to a Protestant. And she said it really irked her, and she couldn't get it out of her mind. And um, some of that hatred that she had for the Catholic Church was now transferring to me, you know, because I had, I had made this impertinent comment. She said there were a few times when she woke up in the middle of the night out of deep sleep with that thought in her mind, I, I need to go to confession. And the way she described it was she said eventually she just broke down in prayer and said to God, I cannot believe that you want me to do this. But on the off chance that this is what you want, I'll do it. And she did it. She went to confession. And she was able to purge all that poison. She was able to seek forgiveness, find forgiveness. And joyfully, she was writing to tell me that she had come back to the Catholic faith. She had her marriage blessed. And she was back on track. And and she was just so happy that we had had this conversation. And... I, on the other hand, was dumbstruck because I realized that this is the work of God in the heart of of another human being. I was ready to destroy the whole thing by wanting to crush her arguments with Bible verses. And it was that grace of the Holy Spirit that made me keep my mouth closed. I'm glad of that. But that, that story taught me an awful lot about the need of forgiveness, not only to forgive ourselves, but also to seek that forgiveness and to find that divine remedy that comes through the sacrament of confession. There's so much more we could say with regard to this spiritual conversion. I know that I'm, I'm speaking to a group of people who are already very well aware of that, but I think that it's important that we keep in mind that Lent is not simply about giving up candy or cookies or something like that, but it's that deeper turning away from those elements that are keeping us from Christ. This woman, Amy, uh, she had to turn away from something huge. But thank God she did. The next area is the area of intellectual conversion. Let's talk about that for a few minutes. I have a theory that uh, goes something like this. Having traveled the United States and Canada and even other parts of the world for over 22 years now and speaking to Catholic audiences and getting to know Catholics at parishes everywhere... My theory is that the average adult Catholic has about an eighth-grade education in the Catholic faith. Now, that's not intended to be disrespectful to any Catholic, certainly not to any of you. I don't mean to suggest that Catholics are not devout or that they don't love God or they don't pray. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not talking about their level of fervor. I'm talking about practical, formal education in the faith. Is it not true? Tell me what you think. Is it not true that for most lay Catholics today, their formal training in the faith ended when their confirmation classes were over. 
true for most Catholics. And my theory then means, practically speaking, that we have several generations of Catholics now who have about an eighth grade knowledge of the faith. And this is a very dangerous situation because not only are there many groups out there that are are actively searching for Catholics, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, many of the Protestant groups that are out there. You know the big mega churches that spring up on the on the edges of town and they're Did you know that those big mega churches are filled with ex-Catholics? Some of them are predominantly former Catholic. These big mega non-denominational denominations. So this is a big problem. Let me ask a show of hands. How many of you know somebody who's left the Catholic Church? How many of you have ever been asked a tough question about your Catholic faith and didn't have a good answer? And how many of you don't like to be asked to raise your hands in public? <laughs> well, the first two questions, of course, are serious ones because, after all, we, we know the pain of seeing a loved one or a friend leave the Catholic Church, and we know the, the sense of uh, consternation when somebody poses a question to us, we don't know the answer. Well, the reason is that we need to undergo an intellectual conversion. As Catholics, we cannot afford to just sort of float along, intellectually speaking here, at an eighth grade level. Ozzie and Harriet didn't have to deal with things like fetal stem cell research or cloning. So our parents and grandparents' generation, they live in a different world than we do. They were not bombarded with information and slogans and come-ons and sales pitches and philosophies and isms the way we are. They were not faced with moral dilemmas, bioethical issues. They were not faced with the kinds of things that we're faced with today. But if you and I as Catholics and all the rest of our Catholic brothers and sisters, if we don't have individually and as a group an intellectual conversion away from childish things toward adult maturity in the faith, we will be swept away by what Pope John Paul II called the culture of death. I mean, don't you think it's already happening? Look what we're up against. So I can go on talking about the problem. I'll just simply, I'd like to simply specify a couple of things that I think are important. Number one, we have to take advantage of the the resources that we have available to us. You know, what was it that St. Paul said? He said, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And I think that there's a perfect connection between that and modern technology where sin abounds in the world today and confusion and, and uh, erroneous philosophies and worldviews, God has seen to it that we have a superabundance of resources to counteract those problems through the Internet, through Catholic Radio, through the books, the CDs, all the things that are made available to us that Ozzy and Harriet didn't have. They didn't need it back then. We need it now, and God has seen to it that we have it. So... My practical recommendations to you would be these. Number one, begin to train yourself in the faith. You know those, um, those exercise machines that come on TV at night? You know, at the end of a long day's work, you sit down to watch the news, and you've got these, like, RoboFlex machines. You've seen these things, right? You've got these beautiful... First of all, the women are beautiful, and the men are handsome, and they're pumping iron, and they're rippling with muscles, and they're tanned, and their teeth are white and straight, and no, not a hair out of place, and they look great... And they're not even sweating or anything like that, you know, as they're pumping all this iron. They're not breathing hard. It's, you know, partly an artificial image. But the, the, what they're trying to sell there is the notion that if you exercise, you'll be healthy and you'll be happier and 
you look better. And that's true. But it's also true that we spend all the money on these exercise machines that take up uh, space in the garage or the basement gathering dust because it's, on one hand, it's a great idea, but on the other hand, it takes a little bit of work. I'm going to make it easy for you. You already have the two working parts for a RoboFlex for your Catholic intellect. The first one is sacred scripture. You all have a copy of scripture. If you don't, it looks like the bookstore there probably would have some copies of the Bible if you could get some. Uh, This is the first working part. The second working part is the Catechism of the Catholic Church. If you want to just master the basics or just reclaim information and knowledge that maybe has slipped away from your memory bank over the years, as it always does for us, uh, those are the two things that I recommend. And my, my suggestion specifically is to spend 10 minutes a day, and any time of the day that works for you, but spend 10 minutes a day religiously, faithfully, reading one chapter from the Gospels and read three paragraphs from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I would say begin at paragraph one and just work your way forward. And if you do this, I can, I can pretty much guarantee you, in 30, 60, 90 days, you're going to have a, a noticeable, perhaps even a startling increase in your knowledge of the faith, what the church teaches and why. And you're also going to become that much more comfortable in your discussions with non-Catholics, especially using the Bible. So try that and see if that doesn't work for you. I think you'll find it's very effective. The second thing is make full use of the, of the resources that are available to you on the Internet. Catholics, Catholic Answers, their website, catholic.com. It's been 15 years now since I left Catholic Answers to go on my own. But ever since then, I have constantly recommended the website, catholic.com, because it's so easy to get free information. The articles, the departments, all the, the multimedia things that are there. You can, take, you can pick any topic you want. Fetal stem cell research, plug that into the search bar. It's going to pull up all kinds of stuff for you. Uh, Catholic Radio. Uh, I, I assume Catholic Radio is heard in, in this area. It's a wonderful, wonderful way to improve your faith. Uh, you may find that there's a certain show that you like. Probably, you know, uh, everyone's going to have a different, different thing that they're looking for in Catholic Radio. The show I do is the Open Line program on uh, EWTN, Thursdays from 2 to 4 Central. You can, you can go to the EWTN.com website and download it. All the shows are archived. And you can subscribe to them on iTunes. You don't have to pay for anything. It's all free. Just put iTunes on your computer and subscribe to that. It will automatically pull everything down, put it on your computer, and then you could load it onto your iPod or your your MP3 player or what have you. Um, There are so many ways in which we can do this. And I think that when, um, when the time comes and we're standing before the Lord to be judged, there will be a question asked of us in our generation What did you do to take full advantage of the resources that I gave you? You Did you make an effort to uh, read the books and do those things? I think we we, uh, have to do a lot of work while the the sun is still shining. Finally, our moral conversion. Our moral conversion has to do with how we live. And so just to touch briefly upon some of those things that I alluded to earlier, Lent is the time, I think, for us to really take stock of the things we do that are either evil or they're good, but but we're not doing enough of them. What was it that the Lord said? You know, I wish you were either hot or cold. 
But if you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. The word actually in Greek is vomit. <laughs> I will vomit you out of my mouth. And uh, I thought about that an awful lot because I certainly have gone through times in my life, especially my early life, where I was lukewarm. I was not fervent. I wasn't cold, but I wasn't fervent. And so it's that, that moral conversion that will dictate as we move through Lent, to what extent am I uprooting and getting rid of those things in my life that are evil? It could be sexual sin. A big problem right now, you talk to Catholic priests as I do. I stay in rectories a lot when I travel. Probably the most commonly confessed mortal sin by Catholics, Catholic adults, it's men and women, but mostly men, is Internet pornography and the sins associated with Internet pornography, which would include masturbation, lying, that kind of thing. It's, it's hugely, hugely common. Uh, the sins, maybe not so much of lust, but the sins of the flesh with regard to food and drink, gluttony, uh, drinking too much, substance abuse perhaps, abusing prescription medication. I don't know all the ways in which it can be done, but certainly those appetites are there. We have to uh, uproot those things that are evil. Uh, then there's the, the, the sins of pride, the sins of the heart. I talked about spite earlier, how easy it is for us to become spiteful. You know, just get behind the wheel of a car and get on the freeway. And uh, spite will make its appearance pretty quickly if someone cuts you off in traffic. <laughs> um, those are the things that require, of course, the skilled scalpel of, the, the, of a spiritual surgeon, namely the Catholic priest in confession. <clears throat> but before we make it to the confessional, we have to do a lot of introspection and preparation in, in analyzing ourselves and saying, am I hard-hearted? Do I cherish a, a sense of not forgiving somebody because of something she did to me 10 years ago? And I've never forgotten it, and I've never forgiven her, and I've always been aloof and cold to her. Uh, those kinds of things. And then on the positive side, what are the good things that Christ is calling us to do this is part of that moral conversion. What are those good things that Christ is calling us to do that either I do but not very much of or I don't do at all? You know, the sins of omission, as we say in the, uh, in, in, at Mass when we talk about, you know, I am sorry for the, for the sins that I have committed and those that I have failed to do, what I've done and what I've failed to do. So everyone, each in his own way, has to begin to determine what those things might be. Could be almsgiving. Think about almsgiving for a minute. This is one of the most commonly repeated themes in the New Testament was to give alms. Nowadays, almsgiving has been really prettied up with tax deductions and uh, incentives and free love gifts and things like that. I think we have to do a better job as Catholics, not just giving to the needs of the church. We always have to do that, of course. But let's learn how to be more person-specific, people individual people who are hurting. There may be somebody you know who's out of a job. A lot of people are these days. There could be a family with a sick family member or something like that. And most people are very good about doing things like bringing dinner over, and that's a wonderful way to do it. But there are people who can't pay their, their heating bill, you know. Put 100 bucks in an envelope. You know, Everybody can find a different way to do it. And I, I'm not here, of course, to give you an exhaustive list of them. But I do think that we have to be willing to do that and that leads me to my final few points, and that are these. those are these. Number one, we have to not be afraid to live the truth, the truth of the Catholic faith, the truth of conversion. We can't be afraid to live it. One of the mo most common pr 
problems in, among lay Catholics in our generation is, uh, is contraception. And contraception is so widespread and, and such a, uh, a big issue that sometimes it's almost... Um, it, it, sometimes it can be difficult to speak about that. I know many priests who feel that way. I can't talk about contraception from the pulpit because people will get up and walk out, I've had some say. Or they'll write letters to the bishop or, you know, whatever. But the thing is, and here as a married man with a big family, I know what it's like, and it's, it's a one-income family, by the way. Uh, I know what it's like. I know the temptations. But contraception, I'll use this as, a, as an example of what I'm referring to here about not being afraid to live the truth. There are many ways we could approach it, but I'll... I'll just use this as an example. We are, are up against the culture of death. We're up against this mentality that sees life as purely utilitarian. It's, it's useful insofar as it either gives pleasure, think about pornography, or that it makes money for me, or it entertains me. So if a human being will do one of those three things for me, if it makes me money, gives me pleasure, or it entertains me, then okay, great, I have, I have use for that person. The, the more our, our generation seems to unwind, the more the more it seems that we need to be stalwart and heroic in our efforts to live the faith. And I'll use this example of contraception as uh, one of many examples. One night, <clears throat> my wife and I were at uh, Olive Garden, and we, um, we, our youngest son had uh, just been born. He's now turning nine years old, so he was just a little infant at the time. I'm going to go a couple minutes over, but I'll keep an eye on the clock for you. <clears throat> uh, so we went to the Olive Garden to get away from the hubbub of the house and all that. So Nancy and I, the little Stephen in his bassinet, we go into the Olive Garden, sit down to have a nice plate of lasagna. And uh, the waitress comes over and she says, oh, beautiful child. And you know how women are so maternal. And so the questions were coming like, you know, how old, boy or girl, that kind of thing. Well, then she asked Nancy a natural enough question. She said, is he your first? And... <clears throat> So Nancy looked at me across the table, and with her eyes, she silently said, do you want to tell her? And uh, <laughs> I looked back at her and smiled, meaning, no, you go ahead and tell her. So Nancy said, he's our 11th. <clears throat> now, you may remember the TV show Sanford and Son, where uh, he would grab his chest and kind of go like that. Well, this waitress did something similar to that. She couldn't believe it, 11 kids. So she ran off. She got four or five other waitresses and brought them over to the table. <laughs> And they were, they were just agog, and they were uh, taught, you know, they just couldn't believe it, and 11 kids. And, you know, the, the obvious thought on their mind was, you guys are crazy. And, and then they started talking about their own contraceptive habits. One of them said, well, I'm on the pill. We had two kids, and that's it. No more for us. And the other one said, yeah, well, I got my tubes tied. We got our boy, and now I've got my tubes tied because we don't want any more either. And then the other one said, you know, they, they each went through what they're doing to prevent having children. And after they were done saying all these things, and the message, of course, was, you guys are weird for having all these kids, Nancy just very sweetly smiled up at them, and she said, well, my husband and I believe that children are a gift from God, and we believe in being open to life so that God will bless our marriage. That's all she said. And that was like putting water on a campfire. They, they got up and went back to their, their work, and so we finished our dinner, and when we paid the bill and were walking out to our car in the the far end of the parking lot, I heard, I heard footsteps running up behind us. And I turned around, and it was our waitress. And she had come running out of the, the restaurant and had run all the way down the length of the parking lot to where we were getting into our car. 
And she came up, and under the light of the street lamp above, I could see tears in her eyes, and she said, I just didn't want you to leave without saying thank you for what you said in there. And Nancy said, well, what? What do we say? She said, what you said about children being open to, li- or being open to life and children being a blessing from God. She said, I'm on the pill. We have two children. I'm on the pill. And my husband and I have not wanted any more children. But she said, when you said that, she said, I knew that that was true. And she said, I, I want my marriage to be blessed. And I'm going to go home after my shift tonight and tell my husband, I'm getting off the pill because I want God to bless our marriage with more children. And she said, I just didn't want you to leave without saying thank you. She gave Nancy a hug. She went back into the restaurant. We've never seen her again. But how beautiful that the a truth that is not popular, spoken in a, in a polite and respectful way and gentle, could have such a profound effect. We never know what those effects might be. Now, I have a few more things that I want to share with you but I'm going to reserve those for the next talk that I'll give you. We're up against the clock. Um, I want to talk to you after, the, uh, after this next break about how we have to not be afraid to speak the truth and how we have to not be afraid to suffer for the truth. And that will round out the first two talks on the subject of conversion. Uh, I want to thank you for your attention. I know that the seats are probably getting hard, and you'd like to stand, and I'd like to sit. So we'll... <laughs> We'll trade places here in just a minute. If my, uh, if my, my hosts will, get, will bear with me for just one minute, may I just give you a brief commercial for some of the materials that are on the table there. I talked about Surprised by Truth, the book. Uh, this is volume two, and my own story, although I'm not a convert, my own story. I figure if I'm the editor, I can do what I want, right? So I put, I put my own story in this collection of 15 conversion stories. So it's the kind of book that is tailor-made for Lenten reading. It will help you in this goal, in this process of trying to draw closer to the Lord. And it's a great evangelization tool to give to non-Catholic folk in your life. So consider that. I have a trilogy of books that I wrote. The first one that came out was called Where is That in the Bible? It gives you the biblical basis or the biblical monuments of Catholic teaching, followed by Why is That in Tradition? Which gives you the historical case for the Catholic Church. And then lastly, a book called Answer Me This. That sweaty fellow on the cover is not me, by the way. Um, this is a book that gives you the answers to the kinds of questions that Catholics get asked all the time. Have you been saved? If you died today, would you go to heaven? That kind of thing. So individually, they're fine. You don't have to have all three, but they work best as a trilogy if you want to do it that way. A book called uh, Does the Bible Really Say That? Discovering Catholic Teaching in Scripture. Uh, A book of meditations on scripture, it's my most recent book, it's called 150 Bible Verses Every Catholic Should Know. This is not a book of apologetics, this is a book for Christian living. And what I do is I introduce you to 150 key passages in scripture, Old and New Testament, and I, I offer meditations after each of the verses, that way you can, uh, maybe in your, your, um, Prayer Time, or if you're going to be doing Adoration, this is a good book to take with you. And it covers all kinds of various things, not just apologetics by any means. This book here, Search and Rescue, How to Bring Your Family and Friends Into or Back into the Catholic Church, this is the one that Cardinal Egan was talking about. This is, in essence, a book that will show you how you can reach out and help your friends and family come back to the Catholic Church. Perhaps some of you have children who have grown up and left the faith. This book is... You need this book. Now, don't give them this book because then they'll know what you're up to. Okay? 
this book is for you so that you'll learn what to say and how to say it to be able to help draw them back. Uh, I've got a book on purgatory. Remember, man, that thou art dust, and to dust thou shalt return. We're going to hear a lot about that. Well, purgatory may be the place where some of us, maybe many of us, will have to go to be purified before we enter into the beatific vision. And I wrote a a little booklet on the the doctrine of purgatory, basing it on Scripture. So not just pious uh, teachings from Catholics, but on what the Bible has to say specifically. The booklet is normally $7. We're running a special for this conference this weekend. If you want to buy one booklet, pay $7. More power to you. If you want two for $5, that's how we're selling them. So we brought an extra load of these books so you walk up to the table and I'll say, you say, oh, you want two of these? So $5, you have two, one for yourself, one to give away to a friend or an enemy. Um, <laughs> lastly, some DVDs. This one is on Why Be Catholic. I'll talk about that later today. This is on Where Is That in the Bible? These are DVDs. There are two discs in each one. And each of them will, will show you how you can explain your faith to others. We have some CDs. I won't get into all that. But uh, those are there for all of you. I'm happy to sign books as well. Uh, at any time during the day. Thanks very much, and I'll see you at the break. Thank you.